The documentary, There's Something in the Water, explores the issue of environmental racism. Or more specifically, it looks at the disproportionate impact of environmental damage on Black and Indigenous communities in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. Currently streaming on Netflix, the film, co-directed by actor Elliot Page, is based on the book of the same name by Ingrid Waldron. As a sociologist and director of the Enrich Project, Ingrid has spent years exploring the socioeconomic, political, and health effects of environmental racism. She joins us next. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with changemakers impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change magazine. On today's podcast, we speak with Ingrid Waldron, whose work gained particular prominence recently thanks to the film There's Something in the Water. In our conversation, Ingrid explains the concept of environmental racism and why someone's postal code can determine their health outcomes. We discuss the Enrich Project, her role in Canada's first bill on environmental racism, and her thoughts on how best to counter environmental injustices on the ground. Ingrid then shares the whirlwind backstory of how her book inspired a documentary after catching the attention of a certain actor with a passion for justice and why the film may just be the call to action needed for change. When I uh, went to McGill University and I did my undergrad in psychology, I also did a minor in sociology. And sociology allows you to look at issues around inequities and social justice. And I found myself enjoying my sociology classes more than my psychology classes, to be honest. I I had this kind of deep empathy for people when I was a a young girl and I wanted to find ways to help. When I decided to do my master's degree, I went to England, I went to London, England to kind of further that interest uh, in in equity, specifically at that time, the high dropout rates of black students in high school. And then I said, I'm gonna do a PhD on this because I love love this topic. And I I got into uh, the University of Toronto in the sociology and equity studies and education department and pursued a PhD in uh, inequity, but I shifted a bit to health and mental health because I said to myself, well, we could talk about inequities, but has anybody ever looked at the impact of inequities on mental health? I discovered when I was doing my PhD that there was a lack of research on this topic in Canada, but a lot of research in the United States, of course, and in England. Uh, So in many ways, my PhD thesis, which looked at black women's experiences with mental illness, filled a huge gap in Canada. And then you uh, started exploring, I mean, and I just know from the documentary, you started exploring what they call environmental racism, specifically in communities in Nova Scotia, because you moved to Nova Nova Scotia, right? Took on a a job there. Did you do the research into the inequities on the ground in Halifax before or after Enrich? How did did all of that come about? It's really strange because I thought I would... uh continue on my path of mental illness, black women. But in 2012, an environmental activist, a white environmental activist who actually happens to have also been born in Montreal, I met with him, never heard of the term environmental racism in my life. Uh, very doubtful, 
when he asked me to take it on, I said, please explain, how is the environment racist? I didn't understand the policy implications. And he explained it to me and he was really surprised that I had never heard the term before. And eventually I said, yeah, I'll do it because it, it's an opportunity to work with communities I had already worked with like black communities and indigenous communities. But even though he never really talked about the health implications, I said to myself, of course there are health implications. People don't want to dump near them because you know, just to be blunt, they don't want to get cancer. So I thought, well, I'm a health researcher. I haven't, this is about inequality. So I can still engage with my interests in inequality. Um, and it pertains to communities I've been working with, but it also seemed to be a challenge. I thought, oh, this is a bit political. I might get in trouble. So it kind of excited me. And if I get it right, it could have great impacts, really positive impacts for the communities. So the Enrich Project actually started at the same time when he asked me to take it on as a study it became a project an all-encompassing project and eventually became an NGO called the Enrich Project. So in, in the summer of last year I was the um, somebody from Toronto the co-founder of this coalition reached out to me about whether or not I was interested in expanding what I was doing with the Enrich Project to Canada more broadly. And I said, yes, I've always been interested. I just didn't have the resources and the people power. And he said, well, I'm interested in, in looking at some of the issues you're looking at, but I'd like us to do it more broadly across Canada. So we started a new national anti-environmental racism coalition last year that has brought together over 50 different organizations in the environment and climate change sector, including David Suzuki Foundation and Eco-Justice and the East Coast Environmental Law Association and the West Coast Environmental Law Association and the Black Planners Group. It's a really diverse group of people. And we do our work through six working groups. Um, and so now to take a step back, because you, you did touch upon it, but just if someone said to you, okay, what exactly is environmental racism? And why is this something that we should all be mindful of and learn more about and understand? It, uh, the term environmental racism was coined by Reverend Benjamin Chavez in the United States in the early 1980s. So I didn't come up with it. I think when I started the project, people thought I did. And I said, no, I, you know, this is a concept that has been around in the United States since the early 1980s. And uh, Dr. Bullard uh, in the United States, an African-American scholar, professor, he actually defined it really well in one of his books. And there are about five components to the definition, but the main one, uh, number one on his list would be the disproportionate siting or location of polluting industries and other environmental hazards in indigenous communities and communities of color. So it's about a patterning over time, over generations, over decades of uh, the siting of industry, siting of industries by government and industry owners who collaborate on ensure, you know, collaborate on these projects that end up in black communities, indigenous communities and other communities of color. So it's ultimately about disproportionality, but it's also about, you know, when we see the spatial patterning of these industries in certain communities, it's an outcome of environmental policy. It doesn't have just happen. Right. Uh, decision makers decide through policy where to put these industries and they always end up in these communities. And we see that very well in the documentary where we visit mm -hmm. three different communities, right? Where, you know, lack of uh, equality in terms of polluting mm -hmm. um, and the seemingly cause and effect results and the consequences 
to the folks, the communities on the ground. Um, so, you know, I was very profound in that way, um, eye-opening uh, to say yeah. that. And I was in Nova Scotia, but I'm sure there are plenty of other communities across Canada and obviously beyond. We talked about, you know, the yes. US, UK, it's been seen. So, um, like, I know that there was a bill that you helped put together, is that correct, to tackle this issue? And I'm wondering whether you believe to truly tackle it effectively, is it something that needs to be done by policy, through government, through grassroots efforts? I mean, do you have an idea of what might be the best approach? To address environmental racism? Yeah. All of those things. Um, I think policy and a private member's bill that turns into legislation is key. Having the first environmental racism legislation in Canada is so key and will indicate that we are a leader on this. And that, as you know, is happening right now. So, and the work that coalition members have done actually helped to mobilize the bill to be approved um, at second reading because, you know, we came together and we said, how do we mobilize on this bill? How can we get it out there? How can we support it? And we developed various projects, um, speaking to uh, MPs, uh, Twitter campaigns, uh, press releases, etc. And I really think it played a central role um, in the bill moving forward. Um, so I really think policy and legislation is key. But I also think, um, I think education is really key. In fact, in the past, I used to think policy was everything and legislation. Now I think it's education, getting at the young people in high schools. I get so many emails from teachers, but other people who say, young people should be learning this in the schools. Else, We're not going to make the mistakes that we're making because politicians were young ones, right? And That's they're right. doing what, you know, I'm not going to suggest that politicians are malicious, not all of them. They're doing what seems normal to them. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they haven't been educated, particularly around systemic inequalities in Canada. I know our curriculum, right? And it, it barely touches on some of these issues, the colonial history of Canada, indigenous issues, uh, anti-Black racism. It's not that much in our curriculum. So I already think that through curriculum in high schools and maybe younger than that, we need to be able to reach students and to educate them about some of these issues so that when they become future leaders in general, but particularly in the climate change and environmental justice arena, they have the right analysis. Um, They have the right narrative. And then their decisions would be considered decisions. And what I'm seeing with the young people that I work with who are in their early 20s, who are most passionate about climate change, they're the group that's most passionate. The the young people that I, I happen to be around really get it. I don't know if I'm just in a bubble Perhaps I am, but, and these are white young people. They get it. They have the language of racism and systemic inequalities that I feel like their parents didn't have. So for me, actually, educating people around environmental racism very young and not simply sustainability, like high schools are doing sustainability. I consider that different because sometimes you don't talk about power. That's right. We talk about sustainability, right? We need to talk about power inequities. We need to talk about colonialism and capitalism. That needs to be embedded in the discussion. But grassroots mobilizing is important. You know, these communities have been mobilizing for decades, and this is a way to get attention from government. And government looks at that. They say, well, if they don't care, why should we care? You know, so seeing people on the ground mobilizing, you know, you know, asking the government to address the issues, these calls to action are key. 
If you don't do that, government thinks you don't care, then they say to themselves, why should we care? Um, The other issue is just in general awareness. I mean, I feel like I've done so many public engagement events um, in Nova Scotia, um, across Canada, more recently, maybe because of the film. You know, I did one recently in Germany. Like I, maybe I'm in a bubble once again, but I feel like, oh, I've done so many people know about this. But then I get emails and people say to me, I never heard of the term, right? You know, so why is awareness and creating awareness important? Because people are not going to empathize on an issue unless they're aware of it. And and when they really think about it, how it impacts people and that it's in their backyard and they're aware of it in a critical way, they want to do something about it because I've seen that people have emailed me. They've said to me, I saw the film, just like you did. I saw the film. Wow. It really hit me. I didn't know it was happening in Nova Scotia. I'm in Ontario right now, but I'm from Nova Scotia and I had no idea this was happening. Can you tell me how I can help? Right? They're not going to want to help unless they really feel it in the gut. And awareness creates that. Okay. And it's like you said, you mentioned the film and your book um, upon which the the film is based. There's something in the water. Um, I think that's doing a quite a great job of that awareness and education piece. So, so, you know, congratulations to you. That's amazing. Um, and you did, I, I, I've heard you sort of speak uh, and I've, I've seen written how it all kind of came about because um, Elliot Page was, was, you know, following you on Twitter or saw what was going on, something in, in that was from his, his former yeah. hometown. Right. Um, and, and obviously something that, that he was very passionate about. So um I, I, briefly, can you say how did that was that like a shock to you of how it kind of went from a book to a this like lovely, wonderful documentary that's getting a lot of response? So yeah, it's so weird still and so shocking. First of all, I got Netflix for the first time in 2019. <laughs> my personal trainer urged me to get it. No, you must get it, Ingrid. There's so many great documentaries, and I'm like, no, I watch enough TV. I don't want it. You know, so I didn't even have a grasp of what Netflix was or that it was worldwide and this is crazy I gotta tell you so I'm on my Twitter page um probably November October of 2018 and I noticed somebody by the name uh Elliot Page Ellen Page at that time right Elliot Page on my Twitter page and I didn't think anything of it because it didn't say in the profile actor actress didn't think much of it came back three weeks later and noticed that the Twitter page was so active. And I'm not mm-hmm. that active on my enriched Twitter page. Right. I'm like, what's going on here? There are people talking about my book. And you know, so I traced it back up to that obscure photo. Right. And I'm like, is that the is that the person who was in Juno? He was promoting my book, promoting the Enriched Project, uh, lending support to the women on the front lines, like doing all of that, then post it. So I said, Well, I've got to, I've got to thank him. So I DM'd him and I said, I really want to thank you. And he said, well, I'm trying to find ways to use my platform to help you. So we had a conversation in late 2018. That was the week of Christmas. And then another conversation in January 2019. We bandied about a few ideas about how we can help. But then we settled on videos, but not like this, not a film. We settled on a 15-minute video that we can slap onto Twitter to create awareness. Elliot came up with a um, personal assistant co-director April 10th of 2019 filmed me filmed the women uh, in in the film and then I went back to look at it 
And I'm seeing people crying in the film, of course. And I'm like, this is just too emotional for us to slap this onto Twitter. I said, I really think we need to do a 70 minute, a full length feature. And we need to think about the Toronto International Film Festival and all these film festivals. If we say that we want to create awareness, then let's go big or go home. That's what I said. Because that's what I truly believe. Right. And they all agreed. Yeah. And next thing I know, September 9th, the film is premiering at TIFF and other film festivals later on. Uh, it's been shocking, incredible. And it's yeah. been a gift because when it ended up in Netflix, which was uh, 2020, last mm-hmm. year, yep. the amount of people who have reached out to me to say how inspiring it was and that the women on, in the film are so inspiring to them. And what can I do? We've had offers from people to buy a well for the folks in Shelburne. Wow. You saw that was part of the yeah. film. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I had people stop me on the streets after the premiere, three people as I'm walking down the street to my hotel in Toronto. How can I help pay for that well? Wow. At that time, Elliot Page had agreed to pay for the well. They didn't know that. So I said to everyone, that's okay. It's been taken care of. That's just been a gift to know how something that we did in a very rogue way yeah, has impacted people yeah. around the world and educated people around the world. Yes, um, yes. In, in in important ways, um, it's 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 wonderful. It's great. Um, and so now, as you continue your enrich, the Enrich project, you are actually taking on a new role. You're going to uh, McMaster University, moving from Halifax to Hamilton. Are you going to continue this type of work? And do you have hope that there will be change? Well, at McMaster, they've hired me to be the new hope chair in peace and health um and i believe it's because they are aware of the profile that i've given to environmental racism and that's something that they're interested in and they want to create a larger profile for issues around inequities and health and peace at mcmaster so my plan is to do what i've been doing in nova scotia but of course on a bigger scale because now my playground is Ontario. Mm-hmm. So I want to do exactly what I've been doing, but broaden it to the Canadian landscape, the Ontario landscape, to, uh, to Hamilton. It's going to be different communities. I mean, there's still indigenous communities there, but it's, it's not necessarily African Nova Scotians anymore. It's immigrant communities and Black Canadians who might be born in, in Ontario. So it's a different immigrant communities, refugee communities. It's so I think I'm expanding in terms of the populations that I will serve, but also to do all the events. You know, I, I love doing events. Uh, I should have perhaps been an event planner because I love planning <laughs> events. I want to do more of that. I want to bring attention to these issues and attention to the program I'm in yeah. at McMaster and ensure that the public feels comfortable coming to McMaster to attend events. So they, you know, typically the community feels intimidated by academia. So how do I bring people in? Uh, where they feel comfortable and to say that this is also a place for you. So when you're a chair, when you have a research chair, people hire you to create a bigger profile Mm -hmm. for the university, for the program and for the department. So I'm very excited. This is a challenge for me. It's a wonderful opportunity for you. Um, That's really great. And, and just, you know, to leave it off with, are you hopeful I, I, with all the work that you're doing with all the work that you see happening? There's a movement right now that's starting to, um, emerge. What What are your final thoughts on on where we're at and where we might be? Let's say in a few years, ten years, even. You know, I'm really hopeful. The reason why I'm hopeful is because of the young people. Um, the young people that I interact with, but just young people in general, they're not going to let this go. They're so fervent and so passionate. Um, and when I speak with them here in, in Halifax, 
uh, once again, I say they have the language and they're persistent and they're consistent. So the reason I have hope is because this is the issue of the day and the young people have taken this up and they're not going to let it go. So I have hope in them. Mm-hmm. I have hope. Um, I have hope because things always change. Um, change is slow. Change is very slow, particularly around any form of racism. Um, but I'm always, I've always been a hopeful person. And I think what I'm seeing now is that we're no longer exoticizing the issue of climate change and uh, environmental racism. I think it's become, it's in the lexicon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's becoming much more of a popular topic. Um, the people that I know, most people that I know are interested or invested in the topic of environmental racism and climate change. Um, we're developing policies uh, with a justice lens in a way that we never have. There've always been climate change policies and environmental policies, but now what I'm seeing is policies on those two issues that have a justice lens in a very different way. They're intersectional. They're looking at gender and race and culture and income. I think we're becoming much more sophisticated in terms of how we're seeing environmental racism and climate change. So what I'm seeing in terms of policy and legislation, the young people, grassroots activism, people mobilizing on the streets around environmental racism and climate change, how could it not change? Right. Um, right. Yeah. That's that's great. That, that brings me hope and I'm sure other listeners, um, because once you read your book and once we watch the documentary, and I'm, I'm repeating this, but it hits home in a, in a very real way. Um, and it really does make you look differently at, you know, issues that you might not even notice, like they may yes. not even, right? Like some of them yeah. are, are sort of under the carpet type of issues that that shouldn't. So, yes. and I, I can't wait to see where you go next in terms of bringing your exploration and your awareness pushing in, in Ontario and, and broadly across Canada, um, because I, I am pretty sure it will have immense impact. And so I thank you for your work and I thank you for taking the time with me today. Uh, I really thank you so it. much. Thanks for speaking with me. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Beerbaum.